We're going to look at uh, Revelation chapter 17. Now we'll get into 18 next week, but these are both concerning uh, the fall of Babylon. And uh, it's kind of a prediction here in chapter 17. And we see if you look at your chart, there's, uh, I want to look at four groups of people or four people or groups of people. First of all, we'll look at the woman and uh, then the beast that she's riding and then the, uh, uh, the kings of the ages and then the kings of the tribulation. When we see there are two groups of kings here that are mentioned. And um, as we look at them, there may be a temptation to sort of equate them, but it's, they're, they're two different groups of people, and we'll, we'll look at that. Um, but here, first of all, in, in Revelation, just in verse number one, it says this, and we'll read down to maybe verse number six. It says, And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the, uh, with the wine of her fornication. So she carried us, <clears throat> sorry, so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sit upon scarlet-colored beast, full of names and uh, of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman, uh, and I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Now that's a, a, a just a phenomenal image that he's giving to us there. And uh, so if we look at the woman, we want to notice first the imagery. There's some imagery there. The woman dressed in purple and scarlet. Now purple and scarlet, we also see that she's got a lot of jewelry, uh, different kinds of things. In, uh, then as today... Uh, the harlot often dresses to draw attention to herself. They dress to stand out. And so uh, it's, it's the attire of a harlot. And uh, even her name is here, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. So we get an idea of who this woman is. It, it names her Babylon. Um, and uh, the angel later makes reference to the many waters that she sits upon. Uh, is that these are all of the, uh, like we see elsewhere in Revelation, humanity in general, many waters being different, uh, different nations, different, it calls them kindreds, tongues, uh, different ethnicities. This woman on the beast is atop of many waters. She sits on many waters. So there's this, uh, at this particular point in time, we're looking at the false religion of Antichrist, that one world church, that false church. And so, um, she is depicted, though, as being uh, a harlot or a whore. We look here in the, uh, the meaning down here. <clears throat> Y'all going to have to excuse me. I've had this frog in my throat all week I've been trying to get rid of. There might be tadpoles. I don't know. <clears throat> it says here, though, um, she is the embodiment of Babylon, the birthplace of all idolatry. Now, this came about, we know it started with Nimrod at the Tower of Babel back there just after the flood and uh so we we see well not just after the flood but after the flood 
we see uh, that uh, mankind sort of centered there at Babel and really idolatry spreading up. So was there idolatry before the flood? Probably. Probably. After the flood? Not immediately. It was just that everybody that left that ark knew what they believed. Um, but thereafter, as, as with, with all generations, generations that follow, if there's no personal relationship with God after that, then everything falls apart very quickly because uh, before too long, we're just following a set of rules and standards and then later start to question why those rules and standards are in place and should they even be in place? You know, after all, we're a brave new world. And so what happens is um, we see idolatry spread out from Babylon and that was post-flood, that was the birthplace of it all. But we see that she is a, a deceiver and a seductress. If we look at Proverbs here, she's, she's called a harlot, the mother of harlots. What are some things about the harlot that we notice here from the book of Proverbs? Let's go back there. And um, just can I get somebody to read Proverbs 5, 3? Uh, go ahead. Um, yeah, and you, you can take the next one. Proverbs 5, 3. Okay, so she's a smooth talker. She's a very, uh, uh, the words are flattering. They're, uh, Brother Jamie, go ahead and get, oh, did you, no, 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 I'm sorry. Uh, Sister Paul, would you get the, get the next one? Thanks. Yep. To keep thee from the evil woman, from the flattery of the tongue of the Okay, so, so there's, there's some things that wisdom is supposed to be working towards here, and it's to keep us out of trouble, speaking here specifically to the son, to the young man, uh, for, to, to help him evade uh, the harlots, the prostitutes. And so uh, it says here that we see deception, we see uh, seduction, uh, luring in with all sorts of words and, 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 and looks that are flattering, that promise one thing, but deliver something completely different. Um, who's got, uh, let me get nine verses 13 through 18. Yes, Elena. Ah, so, so here's a woman who uh, is luring people in and she says, hey, we can have a good time. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's a, a, stolen waters are sweet, bread eaten in secret's good. And, uh, and, and, and hey, you, we, there's nobody that's ever going to know. And however, though, we find that uh, the dead are there. <laughs> that's... Uh, it's, it's sin. Um, and so what happens to this, this spiritual idolatrous, the mother of spiritual harlotry as well? Idolatry is as the sin of adultery <clears throat> and witchcraft. What, what, is it, what happens? Uh, she lures the nations in so they're made drunk and then ultimately uh, brought to death, brought to the depths of hell. And so... Um, that's what false religion does. If you think about it, it lures in with promises of one thing. It may have some, some nice little trinkets over here to show some kind of proof of what's going on. But where do the, the, the adherents eventually wind up? Lake of fire. There, so we have a, 
a, a, a false church here pictured in Revelation 17 that is luring people in and not just individuals but, but whole nations and, and kings even. At the time of the Antichrist's reign, this will be one of the methods that he uses to sort of bring everybody in and secure them under his rule. Now, um, the angel tells us her identity in the last verse. Now, I want you to think about this. Here in, uh, in verse, uh, chapter number 17, we see this picture. And then uh, about half the chapter is given to just the beast itself. But then in the last verse, verse 18, it says, And the woman which thou sawest is the great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. So a, a religious capital of Antichrist. Now, there's some, there's some back and forth over whether or not this is actually technically Rome or actually geographically Babylon. Um, and there's mention of the Euphrates River. Uh, there are very specific things uh, throughout the, when, when, when uh, the Bible deals with Babylon, the Euphrates is often mentioned. It's, it refers to a geographical location of a city. There's uh, some arguments that John's readers would have understood it that way. It was still kind of a viable location uh, in that day. But um, what do we see here just by way of some references? So in verse uh, 17, chapter 17, verse 1, in the Old Testament, we find Jeremiah 51, 12 through 13. Can somebody just grab those verses for me, please? Jeremiah 51, 12 through 13. We see some of this material is familiar. It's been said before. Mm -hmm. uh, 12 through 13, it's written there on your chart. Okay, so again, we see, we see judgment here looking at Nahum 3, 4. It says this, Because of the multitude of whoredoms of the well-favored harlot, the mistress of witchcrafts that selleth nations through her whoredoms and the families through her witchcrafts. And so um, he's talking about here uh, Nineveh in general, so Assyrian. And yet, uh, it, this all had its start in Babylon, and so, uh, or, or from that particular region, everything traces back to Babylon, uh, just after the flood, or in the, in, the, in the centuries following the flood. So, what, what do we see? Uh, she's actually she's deceived whole nations. We see God talk about several nations throughout Scripture in this fashion. Um, but uh, Isaiah, I'm sorry, 
uh, if we look at Revelation 17.2, Revelation 17.2, it says this, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, kind of, we just sort of read about that a little bit, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And um, Isaiah 121, we see an idea there. Uh, Jeremiah 220, and again, Nahum 3.4, kind of talks about how the nations have been made drunk. In uh, 17 verse 4, it says, The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a gold cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Now let's, um, let's look at Jeremiah 51.7. Somebody grab that, Jeremiah 51.7. Go ahead, brother. Okay, thank you. So it says here that, uh, that Babylon's been a gold cup. We see that there. Now, what does it say there? Whose hand is it in? The Lord's hand. In the Lord's hand. Now, that's interesting. Well, why, why would that be? Why would that be? In the Lord's hand. Look here in verse 17 of chapter 17. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and to give their kingdoms unto the beast. Now, uh, this is talking about the, the, the kings there uh, of, the, uh, of the tribulation period. But what do we have? Uh, this is bringing things to a head. They're all... Why is... Yes. Mm-hmm. So, could you explain on a really practical level what this means, the, the nations that committed fornication and that they're drunk with the wine? I mean, yeah, on a yeah. Level, okay, let's look down here at historical significance. Idolaters have always sought to kill God's people. The, the, the whore there, the harlot, the Babylon, uh, is the fountainhead of it all. And uh, anywhere there's idolatry, it's always used if it can't, whoever it can't ensnare, which is usually the people of God, it, it seeks to destroy. You know, we think about um, really and truly living where we do under the freedoms that we have. We just sometimes can't get our, our minds around how hostile the rest of the world is toward the cross. Even if you proclaim atheism, atheism really, when you boil it down to everything, is the worship of man. Uh, because there is the idea that on earth there is no force higher than the human essence. Humanism is the order of the day. And if humans are the order of the day, then which ones get to rule? Obviously, the most advanced, best and the brightest humans. And so we have, uh, this opens the door for all, kind, all manner, really, of racism, uh, all kinds of wars, because one human knows instinctively that uh, he is equal to other humans, and each one, if there's anything there, they want to advance themselves above other humans. And so, that's, and so we have wars. I will rule over you. No, you won't. And so... That, that, that's, uh, remember the Reverend, uh, uh, oh, let me see, 
John Wise, I think it was, who, who preached sermons prior to our war for independence uh, on the consent of the governed. Now, John Wise was not a humanist who said human beings must have the rule, but he did realize that humans are created equal. And because all men are created equal, uh, and because all men have a sin nature, no one person is um, fit to rule over another without the consent of the governed. So those two phrases, all men are created equal, consent of the governed, as well as uh, taxation without representation, we find that in the sermons of John Wise. Those come from sermons, not Greek ideology. Those come from sermons. And so, um, but whenever we worship man, rather than getting the idea that our freedoms come from God, we put man on the pedestal. And really and truly, that's all idolatry is. Think about, think about it. The, uh, in Africa, the animism and the shaman or the witch doctor. Really, you've got the chief of the tribe and you've got the witch doctor. And sometimes they get at odds and that makes things very uncomfortable. But, 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 but the, the priest of your false religion, they talk to whatever God they say there is. Well, there is no God but one. And he's not telling them to do all this stuff. He wrote a Bible which he will never contradict. However, if you have a God that doesn't have a mouth, he needs to have man as a mouthpiece. Now, if man has a mouthpiece and he's not really the mouthpiece of any God, his ideas are the ones that you're listening to. You're listening to him and he can say whatever he wants. And there's no, and say it's from God and there's no check or balance there. So who ends up with the rule? The priest. That's the way the, the Babylonian priesthood was a ruling class, by the way. Um, and so if you, listen, any ideology apart from the accountability to a holy, righteous God who has written a word, this is rule of law, by the way. God will never tell you to do anything different from what's in here, and he has proven that. And he can answer for himself, and frequently does. When you move away from that, you're at the mercy of whoever wants to say, you know, whatever they want to say. And you have to follow that if you want that blessing from, from that particular God. When you, when, you, when you divorce an ideology, whether it's a good one, if it's a bad one, you won't be able to marry it up in the first place. But even a good ideology, okay, liberty, free market capitalism, representative democracy, separation of powers, those are all biblical principles. They got them from this book. But here's the thing. Even if you take those great principles and separate them from the authority of the one who gave them, they become an idol unto themselves and are not capable of speaking apart from the loudest proponent. And you wind up with still bowing down to humans. And depending on what 
the loudest proponent of whatever ideology says is right is right. And it might not always be because he's a flawed human being, she's a flawed human being, just like we are. So that's why we get this, this tension. Idolatry, whether it's a, a, an, an idol, an actual physical idol that has a human mouthpiece, or an ism, an ideology, still has to have a human mouthpiece. Ultimately, if there is no God to appeal to and to keep that in check, then you're at the mercy of another human being. Human beings are corrupt by default. We're born that way. So there's this, this tyranny that develops. And whenever you start to suggest that there's a God in heaven that you're accountable to, that means all of a sudden that man can't exercise all the power he wants to. Whether it's atheism, which is the almost de facto religion of socialism and communism, or Islam, or Buddhism, or Hinduism, wherever you find those isms get a hold on government, you find the persecution of the church. And oftentimes, the persecution of Jews, without fail. That's what it means when it says that she's drunk with the blood of the saints and has seduced kingdoms. Yeah, because it provides a good inroad. She's a good inroad for governments to seize more power and to get more powers, just like you see here, and to keep that power. So, um, and we see even today certain, certain uh, uh, candidates running for office have taken verses of Scripture trying to appeal to Christians and taking them and contorting them completely out of shape, out of context, to where, you know, the passage does, and, and, and by the way, what passages they can use, they will use, but uh, there are some passages that, oh, well, we can't use that, that's outdated, and, you know. So, so here's what, so here it is, so it, it seduces, now you can look here also, the Roman Catholic Church has, shared more, has killed more than its share of Christians down through the centuries. And look at the way the Roman Catholic Church, the whole reason, one of the reasons they had a reformation is because there is a continual power struggle between uh, the political crowns and the crown of the Pope. Who was, you know, who was higher up? You don't think it happens because we live here. Go live somewhere else for any length of time and you start to find out what the rest of the world is like. Now, I'm not saying it's all bad. Look, some places are definitely worse than others. But uh, here's something else to think about. Um, there are Hindu persecutions of Muslims that happen. There are Muslim persecutions of Sikh that happen. It's, it's whatever religion that particular majority and government authority has glommed onto will be used to persecute the others. Why? For the purpose of staying in power. And so when it says the kings and the governments and nations have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication, there's a revolution, uh, there's a, it's a revelation of how false religion draws people in and, and becomes really more of a tool than it is an authority. Uh, and, and so that gets back to human beings being the God, because who then manipulates the tool? So... Um, but now we have to hurry because it's 10.02. <laughs>
Um, the, other, the other ones are, are, are a little more scant on, uh, on Scripture references there. But, but Babylon is, uh, <clears throat> ever since Genesis chapter 10, we find Babylon, Babylonian religion as a recurring theme and reference throughout the Bible. Um, but the beast, the beast that, she's, that she sits upon, that she's riding, it has seven heads and ten horns, very similar to the dragon that we saw earlier. And it's scarlet, just like the dragon was a red dragon. And so um, there's again that illusion. What was the, when we saw the red dragon with the seven heads and the ten horns, what was the, what was the, what was the red dragon? That was Satan identified with the reigns of governments in world history down through the ages. Listen, so I want to reiterate something. Government is a thing that God gave. But like everything else that God gives, Satan inflames, contorts, and exploits. And so um, it's this, this beast imagery, and we're meant to be kind of drawn back to that. So the meaning is that Satan and his government systems throughout every age, that's this beast. Because of what it says, we'll read about the kings here. Um, as a matter of fact, can somebody just grab Revelation uh, 17, 8 through... Thirteen. We're gonna. We're, nah, just. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Eight through. Uh, through ten. Go ahead. Thanks. The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life and the foundation of the world. When they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. Seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. Okay, go ahead and pick up verse 11 there, too. And the beast that was, and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. Okay, so um, look, what you have here. There's a wide, wide, wide range of interpretations for just what exactly this passage is referring to when it talks about eight kings. Seven kings, and the, the beast itself is the eighth, who was of the seven. Now, they're all good. They all, you know, and they're all honest. They might, they might forget something a fact here or there leave out. I'm just going to give you for the sake of time what I have down here is what I feel is probably the best okay and, and you can research it if you want uh, and, and draw your own conclusions um, but uh, the beast Satan has always held sway over the governments of the ages he uses idolatry in one shape or fashion to control them we just talked about that in the tribulation period, Antichrist's political structure and his false church will exist symbiotically. So the, 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 the nations are going to prop up the false religion, because it's the woman who's sitting on top of the, on top of the beasts, of the beast, and, uh, and, and yet she's also going to uh, uh, dictate to them what to do. So they're getting strength off of one another. It's kind of a, um, for a short period of time, at any rate. We we'll see that here in a bit. So it's sort of a symbiotic relationship there, and um, but all under the control of Satan. 
But I want to look at the kings of the ages, the kings of the ages. Now, um, we see that, that um, the seven heads are seven mountains. Okay, Rome is, is called the city of seven hills. It's been known as the city of seven hills forever. Um, it's, uh, it, it could be, it could be, it could be Rome. But, but, uh, if we look here at the meaning, the seven heads are seven mountains. We see that in verse 9, possibly a reference to Rome. But likely, I think, the kingdoms of each of seven kings depicted in verse 10 embodied in their rulers. So, so um, if, if each mountain is seen as a kingdom, which is seen, uh, seen um, or, or sort of personified in the figurehead of its king. Okay, so um, you're talking about seven government rulers or seven, but not just, you know, the ten kings that we read about, which are the ten horns. These seven heads, probably representative of seven rulers. Now, where do we see these? Under Old Testament references there. You see, I just have the word references. That's the whole Old Testament. <laughs> and, and, and New Testament is you can find verses about these particular rulers. We notice that there are five that have fallen, one that is, that would be in John's day, one that has not yet come, that's going to be the Antichrist, and then an eighth. Here's the way I'm breaking this down. There are other ways to do it. I think this makes the most sense. It's open for discussion. If you'd like to, to, to do some research and, and maybe give me a write-up, I'd love to read you know, what, what, what y'all think. We just don't have time in class today to go over it. Uh, all the possibilities. Five fallen. Listen, prior to John's day, there are five biblical empires that have come and gone. Egypt, the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, and the Greek Empire. One head that is, one king that is, is Roman. The king that has not yet come, the revived Roman Empire, that is Antichrist with the false church. The eighth king. Antichrist again, probably after his false resurrection, because at that point, that's when he, you know, we, we kind of think he breaks that covenant. He shows his true colors. He stops trying to work through instrumentation and just says, it's me, it's me, it's me, worship me, and kind of goes nuts. And that's when everybody's like, ah, and the Jews say, he's not Messiah. And they start to leave Jerusalem. And, uh, so, and, and actually even does away here, uh, the kings of the earth uses them to do away with his false church. <laughs> he said, I don't need this anymore. There's a difference. You'll notice that God could do all of this, but has chosen instead to work with great patience down through millennia. Satan in a seven-year period, after the halfway point, is going to lose patience <laughs> and just do things the way he wants to do them directly right now, and it's going to be terrible. It, you, there's a contrast there. Um, and it's not, So I think there, um, that eighth king is again Antichrist after the point of his supposed resurrection, breaking the covenant, worship directly with unilateral authority. He says, I'm getting rid of all this trinkets. I just, it just, it's, you're going to worship me or you're going to die. We're going to use all this stuff. So, um, you know, I think, I think that, that fits best 
with what we see here. Um, and then there will be a ninth king. That's not in the text here. We see eight kings. Antichrist as the seventh and again as the eighth who is of the seven. But there's a ninth king that will be Christ. And what is the number nine? Spiritual perfection. We have nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, uh, Nine is widely considered to be the number of the Holy Spirit. And so, um, you know, I, th- I, think, I think it fits well with, with what we're talking about. Um, now, the kings of the tribulation. The kings of the tribulation. So we talked about the seven heads. Now we've got ten horns. Ten horns. We've seen the ten horns before in Daniel. We've seen it before on the dragon earlier in Revelation. This really does not take much breakdown. Um, but ten world rulers will forfeit their nations to Antichrist in the interest of a one-world government. Um, somebody grab Daniel 7, verses 24 through 25. Just those two verses, please. Daniel 7, 24 through 25. Uh, yes, uh, just a second. We'll let Paula read it, but just I, I want to mention something. Before, when uh, your hand went up, it reminded me of the question you asked. I wanted to make an allusion. Before you had, uh, remember I said that idolatry gets a hold of governments and government uses it as a tool. This country, contrary to what many people will learn in big boy school, This country is the only one that has not persecuted to death members of other religions. The Roman Catholic Church did it for centuries. But that's more idolatry than biblical Christianity anyway. Talked about that. There's more of the Babylonian tradition there than there is biblical Christianity and Roman Catholicism. But, but... The United States, and this quote, I, I, maybe somebody knows who, who said it first, never has a country been blessed with more and abused it less than this one. Why? Because of a foundation of biblical Christianity, a foundation that says that government can't establish a religion because we realize that real Christianity is, a, is an individual decision. You can't legislate it. So, we were put in place with certain safeguards against idolatrous ruin. People have started to, and that's why it's important that the American left get rid of any idea that that this nation was founded on biblical principles. Because if they don't have an idol to use as a tool to get to power, they can't get control here. Uh, I think if America falls, you're going to see it happen after the rapture. I think when there are no more Bible-believing Christians planted here, that's when you're going to see the utter ruination. I know there's lots of guys like, you know, prophesying, well, you don't see America in the Bible. It's not going to be there. Well, you don't see Australia mentioned either, but that doesn't mean that it's going to sink. You know, Bible prophecy only concerns the nations that are mentioned from the outset. You know, um, And you can try to twist and see and assign different meanings to words, but you've got no authority to do so. Yes? Israel. 
The nation of Israel is the only other one. The nation of Israel and the United States of, the Amer- of America are the only two nations in world history ever to be founded upon the, other, the word of God. The, the, the Bible has gone into other places and done similar things, but never to the extent that it has here because it wasn't the starting point. Here we have it as a starting point. And that's one of the things that, that, that makes us almost unique. Israel is the other nation that did it, and they just had the Old Testament. So, um, all right. Who said that? Huh? Who said that? Who said what? Oh, yeah, I, I, and abused it less than we have. That's, I don't know. Um, uh, several people have said it, but I don't know where it originated. Oh, okay. I don't know where it originated, so I, I don't. Um, but the, the ten horns, we need to get back to the, yeah, <clears throat> we got to get back to the outline. Ten world rulers will forfeit their nations. Okay, they'll, they'll, they'll just say, okay, I'll be, I'll, be a, I'll be a king, but I'll just be under you. You can have real authority here. I'll be your puppet. Um, Daniel, okay, so uh, Mrs. Reed's. <laughs> Okay, thanks. So Antichrist is going to change everything. Uh, all the kings are going to say, oh, who's like the beast? They're going, to, they're going to give him power, willful submission there. But prophetic significance. Now, this is, this is talking about total prophecy. I have it under the historical significance row there. But prophetic significance, they will destroy the false church. These ten horns, these ten kings. Um, look here. In verse number 16, and the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, the woman riding. You know, the thing about a beast is that unless they're, you know, an animal that, that, that has a propensity to work with human beings like a horse or a mule, they really resent being ridden. <laughs> and this wild beast doesn't like the restraints of even its own system. And so it says here in verse 16, uh, we continue reading, that hate the whore and make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. This Satan and his government system is going to turn right back around and get rid of the false church. Why? Impatience. There's no need for it. I'm here. I can do whatever I want to do. I can do whatever needs doing. And so how many of us, you know, sitting here today have ever thought, well, I don't need to you. I'm just going to take this matter into my own hands and been tempted not to go through the channels. It can be something so simple as, you know, the student in school slipping out to the bathroom or to get a drink, whatever, doesn't have a hall pass. It's just me. I've been here for years. I've just got to, I've just got to do this. They all know me. I don't need to follow the system. All the way up to the little thug with a black mask and his fist in the, hair, in, in the air, burning cars and, and, and punching people out in the streets. It's the same mindset. And even Satan's not immune to it. 
so they will destroy the false church in favor of direct worship of Antichrist. We don't need the system anymore. We've got the beast. He's here showing his true colors. These will be destroyed at the city. These, these, these ten horns, these kings, will be destroyed at the second coming of Christ at the Battle of Armageddon. It's these, it's these kings that the frogs, remember last week, get the frogs coming out of the mouth of Satan, Antichrist, and the false prophet that are going to go around deceiving the nations to come uh, uh, against Jerusalem. It's going to be that same spirit that convinces them to get rid of just the false church. We don't need it. So here again, you see kind of a blurring of lines and a little bit of a drawing into question whether this is talking about an actual physical Babylon or whether it's talking about Jerusalem or whether it's talking about both. But different parts of the passage apply to at what will be at that time the spiritual Babylon, Jerusalem, because that's where the Antichrist is going to you know, reign from the temple, or the, the uh, geographical Babylon, which he could well raise up. So there's, you see, here's where, but, but notice, notice that the difficulties here are not difficulties that keep us from understanding the truth of what's being said. They keep us from being able to tell some of the details about what's being said. Difficulty in figuring out which is the proper way to look at it does not make it so that we, well, we just have to abandon any hope that it's literal and just it's spiritual and it must just be referring to what's inside you. There's no, that's the idealist view of Revelation. We, we touched on that briefly at the way at the start back in January. We talked about ways to interpret Revelation. These are the difficulties that present a challenge. These, are the, the, these challenges sometimes run people away from the book, and sometimes they lead to some, some, some grievous mistakes and errors, and sometimes they, they just lead to an abandoning of, of any hope that you can know anything because it's all spiritual and mystical and magical, and, and that's, not, that's not true. As a matter of fact, think about the revelation. Revelation means to reveal, to unveil, not to veil. It's a revelation, not a concealment. So are there difficulties? Yes. But do you know what it means when it talks about? Yes. <laughs> There's no question. We have a, a question maybe about the particulars, but not about the message. All right. Questions? Questions?